in his commentary on the Gospel according to Luke, R. Kent Hughes tells a personal story. I encourage you to listen very carefully to the details, to the twists and turns in this account. Two young women worked together as lab technicians in a hospital. One day they found little to do and on a whim decided to stave off boredom by running lab tests on one another's blood. They were stunned to discover that one of the friends had a rare blood disorder. A disorder that did not allow her blood to clot properly. Now that woman eventually transferred to another state, but her partner named Susie continued to work in the lab at the hospital. One day Susie's friend's Uncle Kent, who tells the story, brought his wife Barbara to the hospital for a routine surgical procedure. Susie did not work in that area of the hospital, almost never went that way, but on this particular day wanted to go to an ATM machine to make a withdrawal. And she happened to cross paths with Kent. They didn't know each other well, but they knew of each other. And she greeted him cheerily and he explained that he had brought Barbara in for a routine surgical procedure. The surgery was performed and the doctor came out and explained that as expected, all is fine. It went well. And then he turned and went back into the area of surgery and did not come out for five hours. Finally, Kent was informed that an artery had been nicked during surgery and that for some mysterious reason, Barbara's blood would not clot. Family members and ministry partners began to gather in the middle of the night as Barbara neared death. The next day, completely oblivious to the escalating crisis, Susie came to work again and decided that she'd stop and visit Barbara, whom she assumed would be on the mend and resting peacefully by now, but Susie got busy. And then it was lunchtime. After lunch, she took the opportunity to stop by Barbara's room and realized that she had entered onto a family crisis. She had no idea what the crisis was, but she was not a relative. She only knew this couple uh, generally, and so she decided she would just back away and exit the room. At the precise moment that she was leaving the room, she overheard a pastor say to Barbara's brother, you need to encourage her. She thinks she's going to die. Something about her blood not clotting. It's all she needed to hear. She ran from the room to her office and she compared Barbara's work up with the pathology of her niece, Susie's past lab partner. And she discovered that the niece and the aunt had the same blood disorder. Susie contacted Barbara's doctors who prescribed a drug to clot Barbara's blood. She had lost two-thirds of her body's blood, but her life was spared at the last moment. Two bored technicians who randomly decide to test one another's blood one technician moves away, another stays. 
Scheduled to work, a rare stop at an ATM machine, a chance meeting of an acquaintance, a busy day, a lunch delayed visit, a friendly visit, a sentence overheard, a file still on hand, a worker still on the job, and a life spared. As you hear this story, how do you interpret it? I think the way that we interpret it says a lot about who we are and how we know God, who we understand God to be. How do you look at these details and the prevailing circumstances and the final outcome? One of the nurses who cared for Barbara insisted that God had nothing to do with any of this, of course. She attributed Susie's discovery to chance to fate. In her words, Susie accidentally stumbled on the solution to Barbara's crisis. It was an accident. This nurse sees herself as living in a world run by random dumb luck. She doesn't know God. Or she at least does not know what the Bible teaches about Him yet at this point. Others would insist that God miraculously spared Barbara's life. They see a God who normally limits Himself to the free choices that people make, but occasionally must take over a situation and perform a miracle or two along the way. Then God retreats to His corner and lets people pretty much decide and act and move as they choose and circumstances to work out until He again needs to swoop in and miraculously save the day. Well, thankfully, God's Word counsels us how we are to interpret this story and how to read all the stories of our daily lives so as to know God for who He really is. Indeed, there are many narratives in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, both, which speak to us about this matter of how we are to see God in the mundane circumstances and the twists and turns of life. In considering these matters, we enter again into the domain of the topic of divine providence and how we read the events of our life from the standpoint of biblical revelation is crucial to who we are. It's determinative about who we are and who we will become in this world. In our study of divine providence, we've noted that the Bible reveals the interrelationship of various realities, the first being the sovereignty of God. That is, with absolute freedom, God chooses and acts as He pleases. With absolute power, He governs every creature, ordains every circumstance. And with absolute wisdom, He conforms all things to His very purpose. His eternal purposes are never thwarted, but are brought to be according to His design. That's not all that's on the table, however. The Scriptures also bring onto the table human freedom. That is, people act willingly and with moral responsibility. We're not pre-programmed robots who are manipulated by faith. And even though we think we are making choices and moving around, we're really not. There's really a divine hand who just moves us around and freedom is really a myth. The biblical narratives bring out both of these ideas at the same time. So we consider the confluence of divine sovereignty and human freedom. 
the red river of divine sovereignty merges with the blue river of human freedom to form the purple river of human history. God is absolutely sovereign in all of it. Man acts with freedom and will. So the truth that God ordains all that comes to pass and the truth that man chooses and acts freely are compatible, not mutually exclusive ideas. Now we saw this in the narrative of 1 Samuel 9 and 10. And over the next couple of weeks, I'd like to demonstrate this reality from other narratives of Scripture which reveal this compatibilism and indicate, in fact, with this, that man's freedom, while real, is subordinate to the circumstances that God ordains. We see this time and again. And we return today to a passage of Scripture we have studied fairly recently, but in a different context. It is a classic text essential to our knowledge of divine providence and I believe is there for the reason of describing God's saving purposes in salvation history, how He has moved and how He factors into the fabric of that history His own purposes to save His people. But along with that idea, there also emerges this understanding of how the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man work together in confluence. How they are compatible ideas. We also see here again the place where God's sovereignty is superior to man's freedom which is subordinate to God's sovereignty because He orders the circumstances that lead us to choose as we do. But there is freedom. There is sovereignty. And we must come to terms with that if we're going to know who God truly is. Let's return to Acts chapter 9, which has just been read for us. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 9, if you turn there, note again verse 15 as Ananias hears of Saul's conversion and the Lord comforts him and counsels him and says, verse 15 of Acts 9, Go, for he that is Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul has been chosen by God to preach the Gospel to the Gentiles. How do we see Saul on this road? He responds to what he sees, the vision of Christ. He responds to it. He willingly submits to the authority of Christ. But it's not like somehow God is standing around wondering what Saul will do with this. Saul is going to persecute Christians. Jesus comes and finds him in his way, in his sin, and gives him life. And chooses this man to be a witness to the Gentiles. And God's sovereign design is that He will take this Gospel to the nations with suffering. Verse 16. Saul will suffer trial. God has chosen Saul for a mission that Saul will inevitably fulfill and there will be problems along the way. As is clear from verse 16, so the narrative develops. Saul is not bubble wrapped here. Real people are making free choices. And when God says He will witness the truth to Gentiles, I mean, all Saul has wanted to do to this point is kill Gentiles. He doesn't care about Gentiles. He'd be just as happy if they were all off the earth. 
But now he's been chosen by God to be a light and a witness, an evangelist to the Gentiles. And as soon as God makes that statement, that prophecy, indeed that promise, we see again that Saul is not bubble wrapped. Real people make free choices and they try to kill him. Verse 23. Many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So we don't see Saul taking his ease there in Damascus and saying, I know that I'll be a witness to the Gentiles. No one can touch me. Rather, there's a plot to kill him. It's overheard. The disciples act. And he is let down by a basket and escapes Damascus. We come to chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. By this time, Paul is a veteran missionary. He has proclaimed the Gospel throughout the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, throughout modern Turkey and Greece. As we come to chapter 19, we read this in verse 21. A major break in the book and as it leads toward the end. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he resolves in his heart to extend the reach of the Gospel westward to the capital city of Rome. He wants to spend Pentecost in Jerusalem, which is in the other direction first. And so he sails to Palestine. How do we read that text? How do we filter it and understand it? By every estimation, there's no other way to read this but to realize here is a missionary planning his next step. He wants to get back to Jerusalem and then from there to head even further west to Rome. He's not a robot. He's not being moved around as a pawn on a board. Here is a man willing and choosing and doing what God has given him to do as an apostle to the Gentiles. Chapter 23. He goes to Jerusalem. You remember it doesn't turn out so well there. He's arrested in the temple area after coming to within an inch of his life. He's rescued from the Jews. He's incarcerated in the barracks of the fortress Antonia off the northwest corner of the temple. So he's in the hands now of the Romans and the Jews again want to kill him. But here he receives this encouraging word in verse 11. Chapter 23 and verse 11. As he's there in prison that night, the Lord stands by him and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So we have the missionary planning, I want to go to Rome. We have here now Christ in a vision to Him saying, you will get there. It is My purpose to bring you there to Rome. This message undoubtedly filled Paul with courage. We will see that he does not put his hands behind his head and kick up his feet again here though, does he? Notice what happens in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, do you see a connection there with what happened in chapter 9? God speaks about what will happen with Paul and immediately there's a plot on his life. I don't think there's a mistake there. 
There's a connection there. Satan is opposing the salvation purposes of God. So there are these individuals who want to kill Paul. The God who has purposed to get Paul to Rome ordains then that Paul's nephew overhears this plot against Paul's life. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. He does not say to his nephew, no problem. Jesus appeared to me and said, I'm going to head to Rome anyway. They can't touch me. I don't know how he's going to pull this off. It's going to be really interesting, but you don't need to tell him. Just go tell him. This is part of how God is going to get him to Rome. An overheard conversation about blood not clotting. Here, an overheard conversation about an ambush. He acts upon it. And he took him and brought him the tribune and said, verse 18, and he said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. These people want Paul dead. And they are really, really serious. They're not going to eat again. They go to the highest authorities to get this thing done through intrigue and deception. They really want him dead. But outside of their control, this nephew overhears their plot and reports it to the tribune. And apparently no one else learns about it. They're acting. They're willing. They're choosing. They are going according to their heart's desires. They are not in control of the circumstances. Roman troops, as we know, convey Paul safely to Caesarea or he remains imprisoned for two years in Herod's seaside palace. Now that's a strange way to get to Rome. But here he is for two years in the palace and while there he appeals his case to Caesar and Festus grants the request. Not the way Paul thought it would happen. He had just planned to go to Rome, but he's on his way now. What follows is this harrowing journey by sea to Italy. More importantly, we see the confluence of God's sovereign purpose to get Paul to Rome. We see the confluence of this with the free choices of man, and we see the forces of nature 
winding together and working themselves out here. God has assured Paul that he will stand in Rome. But God does not airlift him there. Paul does not fatalistically take his position in a hammock below deck and ignore his circumstances. Not by any means. That's not how this works out. And the narrative could be written that way if that was how life works. But but the sovereign God shows us a different story. Acts chapter 27. Now let's think of this narrative knowing that it points us to who God is and to how He operates in this world with His sovereign purposes, with the choices of man, with the forces of nature. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. That's on the calm side of the island because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra of Lycia, a prominent city, common port of call for ships taking grain from Egypt. Here they embark as their ship will soon now journey north into the Aegean Sea on the homeward journey, and uh, they want to head west. So there, verse 6, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lassia. So these strong winds, as you see on the map here, from the north are forcing the ship to find protection on the lee side of Crete. They're skirting the Cape of Salome on the northeast corner of the island. And as verse 8 draws out, there's these contrary winds. And and they've cost them valuable time. As the autumn advances, the winds shift. They blow down from the north and make it too dangerous to cross the Mediterranean Sea. The rule of thumb, September 14th, it becomes dangerous. November 11th, it becomes impossible. Well, as we learn in verse 9, they're in that danger zone. Still possible, but very dangerous. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. That is the fast, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, past September 14th. It's dangerous now because of these northerly winds. And Paul, perhaps the most seasoned traveler there, advises them saying, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they should reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. That portion of Crete, the harbor of Phoenix, much nicer harbor, much larger city, 
more ideal place to go. Now, we see there's just a 40-mile stretch on the lee side of this island. It would seem fairly reasonable. I think Paul is apparently saying, I don't travel after Yom Kippur. Just don't do it. Don't go out there into the sea. Let's not, it's just 40 miles. We're going to stay right along the coast. How much nicer it will be to get to Phoenix for our, our wintering. But, verse 13, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. The little boat that's being hauled along the back, they pull it in, it's acting uh, as an anchor and hurting them. And they hoist it up, verse 17, and used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. The Sirtis, if you just look at the map here at Libya, there's these sandbars along the coast of Libya. They think they're going to be pushed that far south. The wind is that strong and they're that lost at sea. They think they'll be driven into these sinking sands and that they will be lost. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope for our being saved was at last abandoned. No GPS. All you can do is go by the stars. There's no stars. And you're being driven without sight. They are essentially blind and they are utterly lost and now without any hope. Since 21, they had been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Paul knew that. Jesus had already said that. It's a confirmation of what He had said. He adds this, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul puts his confidence in the God who created the sea and has promised to stand Paul as witness before Emperor Nero. Paul has confidence in the God who rules sovereignly over the sea and who keeps His Word. Now it's easy for us to say, well, of course Paul would be confident in God's Word. But remember, they are in this terrible storm where faith dies. And yet, Paul's faith remains strong. And he says, we'll get there. I have confidence in what God has said. And when the fourteenth night had come, verse 27, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected 
that they were nearing the land. Where did they think they were going? They thought they were going to be driven south to the Cirstus on the Libyan coast, coast of Libya. That's where they thought they were headed. They had been driven westward across the sea. No idea where they are. So they took a sounding and they found 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it, let it go. There's a lot there. God has said no one will die. What does Paul say? If these sailors get away, there's no way for you soldiers and the rest of us prisoners to be spared. They have to stay in the boat. The soldiers acting on that tip, having come to really listen to Paul at this point, acting on that tip, they say to the sailors, no way. Get back in here. We want to get the land safely. So two weeks after leaving Fair Havens, the sound of the waves indicates that they are approaching land. And again, Paul does not think fatalistically, but very rationally says, get those sailors back here. And the soldiers cut loose the dinghy, the sailors stay, and their efforts are crucial to the survival of all, of which now we read. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, writes Luke, and all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now watch the sailors. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. All of this happening in a severe storm. Very dangerous, but the sailors were kept on board and they're getting the ship in. Hoisting this foresail to get speed up so that they can beach the ship. Doesn't quite work as planned. Verse 41, they strike a reef. They ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. So the front stuck in the sand, into the rocks there on shore and on this reef. And the back is pounded by the waves and broken up, the, the wooden ship. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Alright, so now we've gone into even more danger for Luke and Paul and Aristarchus. Now all, the, all these dangers at sea and the trial there, now we've got these soldiers that want to kill us all. 
But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. What are they doing? They don't all jump gleefully into this storm and just say, God said we'd get there. It's going to be interesting to see how this works. Well, they grabbed a board if they couldn't swim, or they swam with all their strength to get to the shore. How God was going to spare their life was for them to swim for their life. He knew how it would turn out. He ordained how this would take place. And they have to swim for all their life in the storm to get to shore. They're brought all safely to land. You may remember this as we went through the book of Acts, but how profound this is. Two weeks at sea, blind, lost, entirely out of control, having no idea where they are, thinking that they are going to be blown south, they're blown west across the Mediterranean Sea, and they land on this little spit of island called Malta or Melita. You see on the map here, the big fat red line covers the the island. It's so tiny. And if they had missed this by just a fraction of a degree, they would have been blown out into the Mediterranean Sea and perhaps never heard from again. But God brings this ship right to this little island and they stick it. The ship sinks, but everyone lives. Think on this. The ship is broken to pieces by the surf, but 276 people survive. Not one is lost at sea. And all, we find, swimming for their life as they come up on shore. They're brought safely through chapter 28, coming to an island called Malta. They're received by the people there. And as we move down to verse 11, after three months of hospitality there on that island, they set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up and on the second day we came to Puteoli. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Let's underline the word so. And so, in this way, we came to Rome. The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as form of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him as he is under arrest as a prisoner of Rome. We came into Rome in this way. This narrative is here that we might see God's saving purposes worked out through the book of Acts. It's here to get us from Jerusalem to Rome with the Gospel. That God's saving purposes 
are to bring the light of salvation in Christ to the Jews first and then also to the Gentiles. And so the Gospel moves from Jerusalem to the center of the Roman world against so many odds. God has His plan to bring this about. And I believe that's why this narrative is ultimately here. But it is here as well to teach us how our God works. How in His saving purposes He brings things about for His glory for His honor, how we are to understand the relationship between His sovereign purposes and the freedoms that we exercise as human beings. Do you see here a commendation of the thinking that fate runs the world? Is that what we're to see? In all of these human efforts, in all of the planning and purposing and the decisions that are made and the efforts that are made, this narrative does not commend that to us. It could. It could completely ignore what the people did. It would save a lot of ink and paper. But it does not for a very specific reason. We see here people acting and moving because it is not a world that is run by fate. That what must be, comes to be. As if there is no sovereign God. It's not a fatalistic narrative. Nor would I argue, is this a narrative filled with miracles? We don't see God intervening here at certain places like He would not normally do, but rather we have here a narrative that commends to us the knowledge of providence. God does not subordinate Himself to our free choices, does He? Our free choices are subordinate to the circumstances that God ordains so as to assure that His every purpose is fulfilled. When you are jumping into the sea in a storm and there is an island there, the circumstances determine that you are going to give your full effort to get to that island. Now, you're in it. You're willingly giving your all there, but you are not in control of the storm. There would be no storm if people were in control. No one would have chosen a storm here. Not Paul, not those with him, not the prisoners, not the sailors, not the soldiers. This is what you call a bad experience. But in his, for reasons that he alone knows, God brings this about by his sovereign purposes, ordaining all the circumstances, working with the forces of nature, and working with the choices that people make to bring Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. What it also does, this narrative, is teaches us who God is. And we have to ask the question, if we're just alive, to say why? Why does God lead Paul through such a gauntlet of trials to get him to Rome? Why does He ordain that an artery gets nicked and a woman is brought to the verge of death before being spared? We have no answer. The text does not supply an answer. We cannot divine an answer by thinking we can know the mind of God somehow. He has revealed that trials build our faith. We can know that. He has revealed that He works all things together for good for those who belong to Him. He does not reveal why He does all that He does. Why these circumstances prevail, we are not told. 
We are told that His ways are above our ways. That His thoughts are above our thoughts. That He has purposes we will not fully understand. But what we know is that He's up to the same program. He is bringing salvation to His people. There is a record of salvation that He continues to work through the ages. He's done it here, Jerusalem to Rome. And He is doing it in the stories of our daily lives. He is working out purposes of salvation that we could never understand. We do not know why the trials and the heartaches and the difficulties come, why things don't go the way that we want them to go, but what we can know is that God reigns sovereignly over all things to bring about His purposes for the salvation of His people, and He will bring us home. I can tell you as I read this narrative, are you with me? the first thing that does not rush to mind after reading this narrative is what a great wonder that God has chosen to make Himself dependent on what man decides. Can you come out of here with that? These people on this ship are blinded to the stars. Their only form of navigation. Have you ever been in a fog where you cannot see? taking a friend home on a foggy night on a river and we went right by his house which was right on the road and nobody saw it. Somebody else in that fog drove right down the street and up into somebody's driveway and plowed right into their garage. You could not see where you were going. This is essentially where they're at. They have no idea where they are. They don't know where they're going. They cannot control the storm. They're throwing everything that allows them to control the the, uh, ship overboard into the sea virtually. It's not God reacting to what people decide to do here. To every circumstance, they respond with genuine freedom, with genuine will. But this ship is steered ultimately by the hand of God. Sometimes we look at these types of circumstances and we say, wow, Barbara's life was spared. Paul's life was spared. I wish that God would come in and do some miracles like that for me. I've got some suggestions where I'd like Him to enter in and to kind of change things for me in my life. I know right where I'd have Him come. I'd want Him to come in and intervene here and change this and make this right. But He doesn't do that for us common people. That's just a Paul. That's just somebody special. Is that your view of God? Is that who He is? Has He forgotten about you because He's so busy with these bigger purposes? I think rather what we are seeing here is this is who God is. And you see how it dovetails now with what we have discussed before. He is not sovereign in the big picture only. He doesn't simply rule supreme by preserving the universe in a general sense and looking over the general direction of history. God is involved in every intimate detail. He orders 
the circumstances. He steers the heart. He ordains what comes to pass in our life. We need to look up and to see His greater purposes that He is working salvation for His people through all that we face. We are not left with a long list of reasons and answers. But we are left with the privilege to trust Him. To trust in a God who ordains all that comes to pass. And perhaps in God's purposes, He's brought you to this place today so that you would face again the fact that you do not know Christ as your Savior. In fact, you may not really like the idea that God is involved in all things because there's a lot of things that are going wrong A lot of things that aren't the way they ought to be. And you don't understand how that works. By God's grace, we'll work some of those things out over the weeks ahead. But perhaps He's brought you here today to face your sin and to face your broken relationship with Him. You know the God you're trusting in? It's a lot closer to those two figureheads on the ship that Paul took to Rome than it is to the true and living God. You're rubbing rabbits' feet. You're rubbing idols. You don't know the true God. Oh, here He is. And He has a saving purpose. And perhaps He's working that purpose to bring you to this place today to face the fact, I don't know God. With open arms, He invites you. Come. According to His sovereign purposes, He will enlighten your sin and the answer to it in Christ's death and resurrection. For those who know Christ as Savior, we need to come into this narrative and to soak in it and then to come out of it knowing that this is who God is. It's revealing God. It's not revealing how special Paul is, which he was. But it's revealing ultimately the saving purposes of God and we need to come to terms with those purposes. And to know of God's involvement in all of life. So, to come back to our interpretation, Susie saved Barbara's life. But we elevate that and know God saved Barbara's life. And how vital is this interpretation? As Kent Hughes wisely and faithfully adds this comment at the end. I have time only to mention it. We look into these ideas later as God gives us opportunity. But he says this of God sparing his life. This was no accident. This was the sovereign hand of God to spare her life. And then he says this, and if he had chosen not to do so, he would have been just as loving and just as good. There's where our confidence comes from. In the God who though He does not think like we think, does not explain Himself and why we face the trials that we face, we come to this place of faith and trust and confidence in a God who nonetheless is always loving and good. He brings all things together for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. Because He is ever working to save His people, we can have confidence that what is does not cancel His character as a God of love and grace and goodness to us. 
And so we move forward trusting, working, laboring, willing, and choosing, but placing our trust and our confidence in a sovereign God who is always good and who always infinitely loves His people. Let's bow. Father, we offer in this moment prayers of confession. We confess to You how weak our faith. How weak our faith. How simple problems and trials can push us away and corrupt our love for You. How given we are to idols that will spare us problems we think. May we turn our thoughts to You, our true and living God. And I pray that You will teach us to be people of faith. I pray in behalf of anyone who knows not Christ the Savior and ask that You will bring them to know You and to discern that You are a God of infinite love and mercy. For those who know You, please deepen us in our walk with You as we consider these truths, as we think about them further tonight in our home groups, as we consider Your influence in this world, may we come out of it with full trust and confidence that You are always laboring to save Your people from their sin and that ultimately You will bring us home. Through the storms of life, we will arrive safely home. May we rest in this. Through Christ we pray. Amen.